Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I am here today without my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, who is taking some time off. Of course, you know what that means. It means a show in which I say, because Michael isn't here, we'll do this quickly. I monologue for an hour and a half and then desperately have to cut this back down to 30 minutes long. I suppose you probably wouldn't know that because you only see the, the top of this particular swan swimming graceful and imperious rather than the rather frantic peddling underneath. To start off with, just wanted to, to read to you guys something that was put out by uh, Gavin Riley, the journalist. Gavin is, is quite well linked into government. He's usually on top of these things. Unsurprising given that he is the head of the uh, parliamentary reporters group. But here's, here's what he said. And it relates to the... Um, issue of public confusion over what the public health guidelines actually are. So, NEFID is proposing the primary age children stop attending any extracurricular indoor gatherings, uh, playdates, nativities, communions, etc. for two weeks, and they're also recommending the wearing of masks from third class up and by nine-year-olds in areas currently required by adults. Now, Gavin Riley says, on this, I'm told the advice on children socialising, which is basically a social circuit breaker for kids, isn't strictly going to be government advice, but will be issued to the public by CMO, Neffet, independently tomorrow, with implicit, but not explicit, government approval. So, government is letting its advisory body come out with something that will sound like a regulation, but technically isn't, because the government is not explicitly supporting it because the government don't want to make those decisions or say those things but also don't want to stop Neffet from taking those decisions or saying those things. What? <laughs> it's not even that I'm annoyed about this announcement. All I can feel is a deep sense of what? What stage have we reached where the advisory committee is just being told, sure lads, you just go to the public, you, you just tell them that and then when we're asked about it uh, we'll say, well, that's not the government advice. We're just broadcasting what they say to you. I don't, I don't really feel that this is a step going to lessen public confusion, particularly if this starts to become standard operating practice. So you'll have the CMO and NEFA coming out and saying things. You'll have the government saying things. With the current style with which they're approaching these things, it's going to take about a week before they come out with statements that are not just different, but totally opposed to each other. Um. We're going to end up in some sort of Kafka-esque regulatory system. It, it, we've complained endlessly about the lack of leadership from the government and the lack of direction. We blame Michal Martin for a lot of that, and I think it's probably fair to do so. But this is ludicrous. This is pretty much just an admittance of, we. well, you know, we don't want to tell you you can't, but we're not going to do it ourselves. You know, have at you and see how it goes. I, I don't know. It just... It, just doesn't make much sense to me. On um, on health-related and COVID-related issues and, and things that do make sense, the Department of Health has finally released the breakdown of COVID infections, uh, sorry, COVID-confirmed cases, uh, hospitalizations, um, and deaths by age. Now, we've been trying to get this information for ages, and it was simply not coming out. And we suspect that the reason it wasn't coming out was because it would show that there were very few deaths amongst younger people. And the general approach of the government has been, 
People can't be trusted with information, and they can't be trusted to do things themselves. You've seen this with antigen testing. You've seen this with pretty much everything, even going back to the start of this. Son, well, you can't wear masks because you'll use them wrong and you'll give yourself COVID. You, there's just no trust in the public. So I suspect this information was not released because they knew that people would see it. And if they became aware of it, people might think, ah, well, like, those odds are pretty good in my favor. So we just have a, a quick rundown through those. I think the immediate thing about the figures to note is that they really, um, really highlight age, the impact of age. So I will put a link to this paper in the bottom of the podcast. The COVID breakdowns are on page 75. The paper isn't purely on COVID. It's actually just on the general state of the health service. Uh, so there's a load of other interesting stuff in there. So the, the headline figures are... There have been 502,952 confirmed cases of COVID-19 since March uh, 2020. This report goes from March 2020 to the 14th of November 2021. So pretty up to date. Of those 502,000 cases, now it's important to stress those are confirmed cases. So you would expect the actual real number is substantially higher because you would have had people who got COVID and were asymptomatic or who were symptomatic but at a very low level and assumed it was a cold or a flu or something of that type and didn't get tested for COVID. So that would be, I would say, the the absolute baseline. You would expect that number to be considerably higher, although it's very difficult to say how much higher um, because you have to assume. But anyway, of those confirmed cases, 19,606 ended up being hospitalised. 2,074 ended up being put into ICU. And 5,592 people died. Now, the death figure is actually quite interesting because if you compare it against the ICU figures, it indicates a quite rapid death. And that would tie with what we saw uh, during the uh, periods where it got most heavily into nursing homes. You were seeing rapid death on quite a scale as it moved through uh, nursing homes and healthcare institutions. And you kind of see that when you look at the uh, the older breakdown. If you look at above the the 85 plus, there have been less than 10,000 cases, confirmed cases in those over 85 in this country. But there have been nearly 2,500 deaths. So amongst confirmed cases and those above 85, you're looking at effectively a 25% fatality rate. Um, so basically as it is, and then another 25% would be uh, hospitalized. But that rapidly, rapidly falls. When you go into the 25 to 34 age group, there have been over 80,000 cases, but only 15 deaths. Now, as you move up, obviously, that that does increase dramatically. But even when you're in the 55 to 64 age demographic, you're looking at nearly 50,000 cases with 323 deaths. Now, obviously, that is a rapid escalation from 25 to 34 demographic. But what I thought was was quite interesting related to the current policies we're adopting um, in regards to children uh, and the uh, I'm sure we all saw the recent announcement by Neffet that they had never said that schools were a safe environment, which I think was then followed immediately by people pulling together a video of Neffet members repeatedly saying schools are a safe environment, a statement which was obviously bullshit when they said it. I think everyone accepted it was nonsense. It just didn't make any sense. But when you look at those under 18, and particularly those under 12, 
there have been no deaths at all. There have been about 70,000 cases in the 0 to 12 demographic. 21 people have uh, children have ended up in ICU, but there have been zero deaths. Amongst the 13 to 18 demographic, there have been over 40,000 cases, and there have been less than five deaths. Now, the HSE is, does not give an exact figure on that, just less than five. So we can say that between zero and 34 years of age, there have been less than 25 deaths since the pandemic began. So that could be as low as 17, or it could be as high as uh, 23. Um, because if there's less than five, then you know, four is the lowest number you actually have. But yes, if you're under 34 years of age, there have been over 200,000 cases and less than uh, 23 or less deaths. And that is why I suspect they wouldn't release this information until this point. If, if they had released that during lockdown, it could have contributed to political unrest. It could have made younger people just think, I mean, those aren't bad odds. But it's come out now. There wasn't much fanfare about it. Uh, I saw the report was covered by a couple of publications, but I think only Gripped actually pointed out the age breakdown of cases. Speaking of confusing communications from the government, actually, Leo Varadkar was in the Dáil the other day, and he said one of the major problems with the Irish rental market is the lack of one-bedroom apartments. And he's absolutely right. The problem, of course, is that he's absolutely right, and we made it illegal to build or let small one-bed apartments, because, as you recall, we banned bedsits. Now, there was that push, the, the push to ban bedsits, came from both politicians and some of the charities. I think Threshold, the homelessness charity, was particularly involved with it. And their argument had been, well, if we ban these very small um, sorts of uh, housing, well, standards will go up in the rest of the board. And, you know, people will have to rework the homes and you'll get these larger one-bedroom uh, apartments and homes. That didn't happen because it was never going to happen. It was obviously never going to happen because it couldn't happen in many of those locations. And what actually ended up happening was we didn't see standards rise across the board and this new bonanza of small one-bedroom apartments that could be rented out by people on lower income, single people, all of those kind of things. What we actually saw was the absolute destruction of the bottom rung of the property ladder. And quite a lot of people became homeless because of it, if I recall correctly. I think the estimates are that they knocked out, from what I remember of um, Michael McDowell talking about this earlier in the year, he was saying ten to 20,000 uh, units, which is rather substantial, considering that, as we said previously, Limerick City currently has eight pieces of rental accommodation in the entire city. So it would be nice to have ten or 20,000. But it was decided that you know, standards could not be improved on those, and people... I believe the phrasing was, shouldn't have to live like that. And now we find ourselves in a position where, if only we had allowed people to live like that. So we're not, uh, just just as a side note here, we're obviously not planning to re-legalise bedsits or smaller apartments of the size that would be perfectly normal in many European cities. Now instead, what we're going to do is we're going to implement a shared equity scheme. In fact, I believe the way forward for that was just cleared by the central bank a day or two ago. 
And what that scheme is this. If you're a first-time buyer, because God knows we can only do schemes that affect first-time buyers, because no one, for instance, bought a house and then lost it during the crash and ended up in rental accommodation, or got divorced or left their partner, or would ever be in a situation where they had previously owned a house, but did not now own a house, and therefore might be stuck. That would clearly never happen. But what this means is that if you're a first-time buyer, and you cannot uh, raise the, in the, the money required to purchase a house, the state will come in and they will give you 20% of the value of the house. Now there's regional price caps and things in place, so obviously it's, it's not gonna be for all houses. And what will happen is the state will basically take up to 20% of your home. The technical matter, there's, there's a technical discussion about the bill. Obviously, and about the um, the nature of it and the idea of an equity share with the government in your housing and what, what that looks like internationally. The most immediate thing this is going to do, and the thing I think we should note when we talk about it, on a practical level, prices will rise. That's the first thing that will happen. Anything that happens here that makes it easier to purchase a home is going to mean more people can do so, and prices, barring an increase in supply or a reduction in cost that ends up being passed on to the consumer, will increase. So if you're going to give people an additional 20% of the money needed to purchase a house, obviously you're going to drive up prices. Uh, which is a point the central bank itself made in its report when it said that these sort of programs could be done. Another wonderful, wonderful plan from Fine Gael that there's the old adage in, in government that you take money quietly and you give it back very loudly. Because you don't want people to realise that most of the money you're getting back is money you paid to them anyway. The EU is also very good at this. You have this sort of, oh, Ireland has been given 500 million by the EU. And then you go, yes, but how much do we pay you in a year? Because we're a net contributor, so we're definitely not getting back more than we put in, not anymore anyway. So we would expect to see uh, inflation uh, caused by this. We would also see, likely see inflation due to higher material costs, general higher construction costs, the government's retrofitting plans, all of the rebuilds, everything they do at Micro, all of that is likely to push up construction costs as well. So you might see the majority of this um, et up by that. But the important thing is for those who avail of the scheme, it is something that the government did and therefore you might be more likely to vote for the government the next time. The long-term impact of that, the prices go up, well, that's just happening. That's, you know, that's no one's fault. No one can be blamed for that. And that is the hope, I think, with schemes like this, that enough people will go in in the first wave and take advantage of it and then be grateful to the government, therefore, thereby increasing the likelihood they will vote for the government, while the other people who come along and try to avail of it and may see no real benefit because it will push inflation up are thankful for the scheme because there's a disconnect between getting the scheme and realising the scheme is part of why you need the scheme in the first place. But the, the construction market is, is, as they would say in the industry, hot. It's a wonderful democratic policy in the sense that it is designed to win votes in a democratic system while being clearly and unambiguously corrosive to the long-term objectives of the state. But who cares about that? Like, no one really is the answer. I mean, we've had 11, 10, 11 years of Fine Gael, and they still seem, they seem deeply confused by issues of governments. I think part of the problem they have now is they've been in government so long that the stuff they initially did to gain a short-term benefit, but which was ultimately a negative experience, 
they've been there so long that they've started to hit the consequences of it. There's an interesting piece in the Business Post by Michael Brennan, who's the political editor of the Business Post, and it is titled How Ireland Inc. is Changing Tack as Sinn Féin's Path to Power Opens Up. And the basic gist of the piece is that the more corporate side of things, as in lobbyists, civil society, NGOs, those kind of people, expect Sinn Féin to take power. And because they need the government, deeply and integrally need the government in most cases, they've started to play nice with Sinn Féin. And they're trying to pursue them, and they're trying to meet with people in Sinn Féin, and they're basically just trying to make it a little bit easier for themselves when Sinn Féin comes in. This is uh, this is happening, absolutely. There's no doubt it is happening. It has been happening for a while now. You have seen, or we have seen, organisations privately meeting with Sinn Féin for a considerable amount of time. And in fact, some of the more perplexing decisions that have come out of certain organisations, so we say certain more uh, pro-business organisations, organisations of that type, have been driven, at least partially, if not primarily, by a desire to be seen as willing to play with Sinn Féin. So if you've had any sort of confusion over why certain entities are doing things that five years ago they would have thought absolutely outside of the bounds of possibility, it's because of this. And it's actually quite interesting to see, because so much of Irish civic society is entirely dependent on the government, that it's very easy to see, whereas usually, I mean, if there's a change between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and it's kind of, you can see it coming, you would see something like this. But it's much more subtle. Whereas now, because there were so few existing links to Sinn Féin, and there were so few organisations who were actively engaged with them, it's much more obvious because the movement is much larger. One of the, the interesting things that the Business Post points out, and they've, they've gone through the lobbying register, basically, and they found everyone who's a registered lobbyist who's met, met with Sinn Féin, and then looked to see who was most common. And the one I thought was particularly interesting, and so did the Business Post, was Danny McCoy. Now, Danny McCoy is the chief executive of IBEC, so they point out that during the last election, he came out and said there would be grave implications for the economy if Sinn Féin comes to power. But the lobbying register shows that IBEC has been the most active organisation in lobbying Sinn Féin since the general election. I would be very surprised if that was not accurate information. IBEC have been very interested in pursuing a good working relationship with Sinn Féin. And this, of course, is a key part of the normalisation of Sinn Féin. Getting near power makes people think that you have the ability to influence them or impact upon them and you are now no longer simply an object that they can say or do anything they want about. Now there's a real chance that Sinn Féin are in power, people will deal with you, and because they will deal with you, and they do not want to be represented negatively themselves, all of that negative talk about you, that starts to cut down, because the respectable circle of people have judged that you are now in their interest. And so it's very helpful to Sinn Féin to have these people now. Potentially it could backfire if it, you know, if it was phrased in a certain way, but I don't think so. I think Sinn Féin have been presented as being outside the political norm for so long that a couple of meetings with construction lobbyists are not going to upset that particular apple cart. The interesting thing, I think, that isn't in this report, although it, it touches on it, is these people meeting Sinn Féin, what do they think Sinn Féin is going to be like in government? And the general 
comment I've gotten from these sort of people when you talk to them off the record or you know some of them uh, privately is that they don't think Sinn Féin, when it gets into power, is going to push for terribly left-wing governments. I've had people say to me with great confidence that when you look at the hierarchy of Sinn Féin, these are all respectable middle-class people and they are not going to push for the sort of things that might harm their parents. And there is a wonderful, wonderful naivety to it. It's in their interest to believe it, and so they do. But they seem to legitimately believe that Sinn Féin will do nothing really different, and it'll basically just be if Labour were in power. And there is something they're touching on that I think is correct. The traditional grouping of Sinn Féin was far less left-wing than most people assumed. It talked a very left-wing game. But when you met these people, a lot of them were just kind of conservative working class people. The problem is that after the water protests, the people who came into Sinn Féin and began to move up the hierarchy are not that sort. A lot of them are quite progressive, middle class, that sort of style. And some of the news coming out of Sinn Féin as to their preparations for the next election, who they're going to run, how they're handling their candidate selection, suggests Sinn Féin is very happy to go in that more progressive stance that traditionally wouldn't have been where the party is. And if they carry that over to economics, then I think these people are going to be very disappointed to discover that Sinn Féin will be rather a left-wing government. I don't know enough about the party in the North to know if this is correct. My sense is that the party in the North has never been as different from the party in the South as it is now, because they didn't have that experience. They didn't have that wave of younger progressive people they seem to still mostly be the relative old guard. I could be wrong in that. I, I I try not to speak about Northern Irish matters because I'm not terribly familiar with Northern Ireland. And I think people assume that it is far more like the Republic than it actually is when you go up there. There are cultural differences. We just assume there are none because we largely see Northern Ireland as an appendage, which shouldn't really exist and one day won't. So obviously the the Holliers have started to protest. We saw them go up to Dublin there on Monday, I believe. It's not the Irish Holliers Association. It's the Irish Haulage Association against fuel prices, which seems to be some sort of breakaway. I'm not sure if there's any relationships there to the Holliers Association. They are going to hold another protest in December. Um, the basic point of the protest is fuel costs. Fuel costs have increased, which obviously they have. A massive amount of the cost of petrol or diesel is purely taxes goes to the government. What will be interesting to see here is if this spills over and you start seeing protests against um, the price of heating goods, heating your house, energy prices, all of the areas where the government is going to raise prices through carbon taxes or through other regulatory means. Because the the complaints from these guys that the government is artificially pushing up the price that they have to pay and that because of that it's affecting their jobs is absolutely correct. But it's absolutely correct that most people are going to be affected by those measures and every year until the next election those measures are going to increase in severity. So Sinn Féin are the only major party in the Dáil who are opposed to those measures increasing every year. And if this spills over into general protests on that point, on the 
forcible increase in the cost of living which the government has decided upon as its policy path, that can only help Sinn Féin. But I don't know, I don't know who it will. The Holliers are one of those groups, just a technical point, you really don't want striking. For the very simple reason that everything relies on them. They're one of those, they're one of those groups that's considered to be unimportant, but absolutely essential. In that they've no real lobbying power. There, there are trade groups that represent them. Politicians do meet with them. But they're not really considered to have the influence that you would expect they would have based on how important they are to the, uh, to the economy. Much like garbage men, actually. People really, really underestimate how essential garbage men are. But they're just not considered an important group. However, if this... The, if these guys keep protesting, if you start seeing any sort of strike action on it, it will cause immense disruption. Uh, coming up to Christmas, that's not what the government wants. One story which is very popular now on Gripto, which I didn't actually see being popular initially because I thought it was uh, pretty much the same old, is the story that uh, Ben Scallon put up on the government's new bill. Now, this is the bill we talked about uh, last week or the week before, which the government had been trying to avoid pre-legislative scrutiny on. The bill would extend the COVID emergency powers until uh, June. Technically, it would extend them to, uh, I believe, March, but then the government has the option of giving itself up to June anyway. So let's assume just June 2022. Now, what I had missed in this story and why I didn't think this was going to be a big story is that those powers were given to the government by the Dáil in, I believe, March of 2020. And this bill doesn't give them the powers, it extends the powers. I suppose you could argue it gives them the powers from when the, the previous bill would otherwise lapse uh, until June 2022. But I had assumed this was something people were aware of. I think we talked about it on the podcast at the time. Grift may have published a piece on it. I, I honestly can't remember if it was the subject of mainstream media coverage, but I had assumed that this was something people were aware of because people seem very surprised about two of the powers that the state has and is looking to extend. That the state has the right to detain people they suspect of having the potential to spread COVID and that the, uh, the health minister has the power to designate locations as areas of concern or areas of infection. I really thought that was better known amongst the public. But from the reaction we got to the article, people were not aware of it, which is kind of surprising to me. It often, I spend so much time looking at news and talking to people and following things that it actually becomes quite difficult to tell in certain regards what is considered news to the public, what do they know and what don't they know. So when I saw the story, I was like, yeah, well, it's a continuation. The issue is that they tried to avoid pre-legislative scrutiny not the powers themselves, because that debate has been had, and people didn't care about it. And then we put it out, and suddenly there was a sort of, this is outrageous, this is totalitarian. And there was a realisation that actually, no, people were not aware of it. And I don't know, some of these people are people I would have, I really would have thought followed this news closely, but then again, maybe it wasn't mentioned that much when it happened. And as it passed in March of 2020. That was during the height of the fear and uncertainty about COVID. The government could have passed nearly anything. But it's a, it's just, it's an interesting story, but it was also, I thought it was primarily interesting 
because I was so wrong about it that I just assumed it was something people were aware of. Because something it's something that comes up in the podcast uh, when I and Michael are, are talking about stuff, and this is kind of a technical side, you repeat some of the same topics over and over because new things happen or just because there's any sort of movement on it. And you never quite know if to the listener, they hear you talking about something and they're like, here he goes again. Here's another 20 minutes about something I've heard about 10 times. Or if people are listening to it going, oh, I've never heard about that. Or I've heard about it, but it's legitimately interesting that you're talking about some new aspect of it. And that concern drives a lot of media. A lot of media don't talk about things, not because they don't think they're interesting, but just because they think they've talked about them before and the public is no longer interested in it. But you never really know. And I think a lot of stories that people think have been avoided for ideological reasons have actually not been reported or not touched upon because people in news tend to assume the general public has the same knowledge as they do, spends the same amount of time as them looking into things, which would be insane for a normal person to do. Most of reporting is not finding new information, by the way. It's picking out the important bits of information and letting people who are not going to dedicate half of every day to it know what they should actually be concerned about or what is interesting and is happening. I just thought it was, it was a it was a nice one, and, and Ben was absolutely right, and I was wrong on that one. Anyway, we will cut it there. Hopefully Michael will be back for Sunday. I'm not entirely certain, but I do live in uh, in hope. And if not, I might do this again on my own, or I might um, I might try and bring someone in for Sunday. But we will see. Until then, all the best. <laughs>